I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, September 9th, 2013. Had one of those crazy exercise weekends. <laughs> and we went to Cincinnati to watch the Dodgers lose and get swept by Cincinnati. Ugh. I won't be discussing any more of that from this point forward. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and see if what people are saying is true. Uh, in other words, our new slogan, if you would, uh, do not listen to this program with an open mind. Nope, nope, nope. Listen to Fighting for the Faith with an Open Bible. It'll make all the difference in the world. Okay, we, yeah, I'm looking at this going, okay, we've got ourselves a normal episode of Fighting for the Faith today, and uh, we're going to do our normal stuff, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. And, uh, well, I want to tell you what we're going to do, and then we're going to just dive right into it and do it, if you know what I mean. And what we're going to do today is I've got a long email. I've got it's a short email with a long answer that I want to uh, give to you. And uh, a series of good questions have come in as kind of follow-up to the uh, bonus episode that we did last Monday on uh, Labor Day. And uh, th so I received an email from somebody going, yeah, but isn't it, it's true that Codex Sinaiticus can't be trusted. It's full of all kinds of corrections and things like that. <clears throat> we'll take a look at that, uh, by the way, uh, and give an answer to it. I've got a uh, really good um, blog post I want to read from the Gospel Coalition website um, entitled, How Your Preaching Might Increase Sin in Your Church. How Your Preaching Might Increase Sin. Interesting concept here. <laughs> of course, we're not talking about just because you're twisting God's Word, but actually you're not rightly distinguishing between God's law and God's gospel. And when you're doing nothing but how-to sermons, 
those automatically become heavy-handed on the law. And uh, and that may be increasing sin in your congregations. Yeah, the author here is uh, Jared Wilson. We'll take a look at that today. We've um, I don't think we're going to get to the city harvest uh, information until maybe tomorrow or Thursday. Depends. But uh, there there is news. There's more news down there in uh, Singapore regarding Kong He and uh, and City Harvest Church and. The, the story regarding you know what's being revealed in the trial is oh it's this it's discouraging saddening and frightening and heart, and all of that all in one bundle i mean kind of thought that it was going to be bad but it's even badder than the bad that i thought it was going to be i but again i don't know if we're going to cover that today um we've also we today we've also got a um, a brian houston update and since brian houston falls under kind of the general uh, money grubbing televangelist uh, types will be playing uh, money uh, money music regarding him when we uh, get to him. But uh, I, have you ever heard anybody twist Psalm twenty three? Um, th- this is kind of a first for me. I was going back through the archives today to see if I if I covered anyone really doing a, a shakedown of uh, Psalm twenty three. But uh, we'll take a look at uh, Brian Houston's twisting of that particular passage today. It's not very good. And then in hour number two, we will be uh, going back down to uh, LCBC and uh, listening to a sermon today, which is kind of a first. Um, a lot of firsts today. Uh, twisting of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, that that psalm. But in this particular sermon, th- th- um, have you ever... <laughs> Have you ever heard somebody try to do psychoanalysis on Judas? Um, yeah, I was previewing the sermon. I just <laughs> it's supposedly about not you know, learning how to not be a control freak, which I'm sure is uh, uh, just a great topic. It's just that the Bible doesn't talk about control freaks, and so in order to make it look like the pat the the sermon that he's preaching is actually a biblical sermon. Uh, the uh, the guy delivering the sermon does psychological analysis on Judas and then speculates that he may have been dealing with control issues. <laughs> yeah, I know. I You can't make this stuff up anymore. So that's what we're going to be doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And due to the fact that uh, the email segment is going to require me to actually spend a lot of time uh, answering a particular question, and it's actually not going to be me providing the answer. It's going to be um, Dan Wallace who will be providing the answers. Um, I, there's, I've got to dive into it, and so since we're uh, ready to roll, that requires me to you just segue hard here. With <laughs> I apologize for the whiplash, but we got to get right to it. Here we go. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, our email today comes to us from Steve, and I, I apologize, I do not have Steve's city and state. So, Steve, from somewhere out there on the internet. And uh, Steve writes, and he has a question on the text, a question on the text. And Steve writes, he says, uh, Firstly, I love your show and I listen all the time while I'm working. My question involving the Greek New Testament is this. 
Um, now, I love the ESV and the NASB, but the way that I see the issue with the New Testament is that the Nestle Aland UBS Greek New Testament relies mostly on Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, and also on the body of work that Westcott and Hort did, which are questionable in regards to their beliefs. But doesn't the bulk of the manuscripts and the majority text support what is found in the Textus Receptus, uh, meaning that what is in the Texas Receptus and the Byzantine line of manuscripts has the greater witness. Conex Sinaiticus does discredit the history of the New Testament, and there's no getting away from it, and technically the Catholic Church doesn't need a Bible to run its show. Uh, but us from the Reformation believe in sola scriptura and cannot do without it. Much of the apostasy today, I think, arises from bad translations of the Bible. Now, Steve asked a lot of questions here, and I actually uh, emailed him back, and I asked him, you know, can you, you give me... Like what you think are the strongest arguments that Codex Sinaiticus discredits the history of the New Testament. And he pointed me to – by the way, there's a lot of issues in here, and I'm I'm thinking about like pulling this email apart in a couple of different ways. Number one, the Textus Receptus is not – the Textus Receptus is based on seven Greek manuscripts, seven of them, only seven Okay, there is a difference between the majority text and Textus Receptus. Those terms are not synonymous. Okay, the other part of it is is that um, you know what we're dealing with here. Um, we talk about the Nestle Aland or UBS uh, uh, Greek text. No, it's not based on Westcott and Hort. Uh, <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's not actually factual either. But what I want to do today is take a little bit of a crack at the uh, co- the concept that Codex Sinaiticus that it discredits the history of the New Testament. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this, and a lot of that misunderstanding comes from a BBC uh, uh, you know documentary that was put out there talking about Codex Sinaiticus. And what's interesting is is that. Um, there's a very interesting distinction that isn't that wasn't made by the BBC in their documentary regarding Codex Sinaiticus that I'm going to let Dan Wallace answer, and I'll explain how Dan will be uh, uh, <clears throat> answering that for us today. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to play for you a portion of uh, the audio from a documentary put out by the BBC not too long ago, and let you hear them take a theological swipe at Codex Sinaiticus, which makes it appear that, oh, well, Codex Sinaiticus just completely undermines uh, the uh, the New Testament. Actually, it doesn't. Here, here's the BBC uh, documentary. By the way, the name of it was called The Beauty of Books, and this is the seg- segment called Ancient Bibles and the Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, here's the BBC documentary. Here we go. Among the most highly prized treasures at the British Library is the largest book to survive from antiquity. The magnificent Codex Sinaiticus contains the oldest complete New Testament in the world. Within it lie surprising challenges to Christian orthodoxy. Now you hear that? According to the BBC, within Codex Sinaiticus regards significant challenges to orthodox Christianity. No, not really. When you understand textual criticism, you'll understand why this is not the case. And a unique insight into the religion's early history. This volume is the oldest surviving copy of the New Testament, complete. This is the ancestor of all the Bibles that everybody else has in the world. The Codex Sinaiticus acquired its name because it was kept for nearly a thousand years in the remote monastery of St. Catherine's 
on Mount Sinai. It remained there until the German biblical scholar Constantine von Tischendorf visited the monastery in the mid-1800s. When he was shown the Codex Sinaiticus, Tischendorf recognized its enormous significance. Here was a manuscript that offered unique insights into scripture and which made scholars reevaluate the Bible that Victorian Christians had relied on. Now you go, oh, well, this caused them to reevaluate the Bible they had relied upon. Well, d- does Codex Sinaiticus have this important stuff that, that, well, that Christians have believed in? It proves that they shouldn't have believed it? Well, if you listen to the BBC, you'd think so. But see, the thing is, is that when you think of a secular organization like the BBC or the History Channel discussing the theological implications of Codex Sinaiticus, Let's just put it this way. They don't give you the whole story. And the whole story actually gives you the ability to understand how to rightly understand what's going on in Codex Sinaiticus. But we'll, let's, we'll continue. The King James Bible, sturdy and black on the shelves, was, was thought to be perfect and errant by many people across the English-speaking world, which was mostly Bible-believing Protestants. But the fact of the matter was that scholars had known that the translations were all based on rather shaky evidence, shaky texts. Shaky texts. Oh, no, we've got shaky texts. Well, if you've studied textual criticism, um, you hear something like this and you go, oh, boy, that's like a major overstatement that omits all kinds of data. But we continue. So this is what drove von Tischendorf to go and search across the ancient scriptoria, as they were called, of the East and to discover this spectacular Bible. But beyond its bookmaking craft and scribal elegance lies a complicated story. On closer inspection, the text of the Codex Sinaiticus is littered with revisions. Oh no, it has revisions! Which have intrigued scholars for centuries. Gasp! What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, was one of the revisions in there something like, you know, and the angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary, and it, she really wasn't a virgin. She, you know, the angel Gabriel just came to the prostitute Mary. I mean, those kind of revisions. Again, you, you hear something like this, and you go, uh oh, uh oh, I can't trust my Bible. Trust me when I tell you that when you really understand textual criticism, you understand. Just how duplicitous at this point the BBC is being. It is history's most altered biblical manuscript. It's the most altered. Oh, no. What are we supposed to do? As you can tell, I'm not really scared. I've actually translated portions of Codex Sinaiticus. Um, I can read Greek rather well. And within those changes lie its real theological secrets. It has approximately... 23,000 corrections. 23,000 corrections! Oh, what are we supposed to do with that? You see, when you just listen to something like this from the BBC, I mean, you're thinking, there's something seriously wrong with that Codex Sinaiticus. We better get rid of it. I mean, it's been altered. 23,000 corrections. In all that survives, which is an extraordinary rate of correction it means that on average there are about 30 corrections on each page all right now it's fascinating that that's the language that they would use for this you know there's 30 corrections on each page 
Um, which the reason why this is, well, interesting is because they're not actually using the language that uh, textual scholars would uh, bring to bear on this. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play for you some audio from a few very good videos, which is uh, uh, the basics of New Testament textual criticism. Those of you who have iTunes, those of you who have iTunes, um, that you will notice that there's this thing called iTunes University or iTunes U for short. Did you know that in iTunes U, you can actually find a series of video lessons put out by the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts uh, that interview or the person in the video is Dr. Dan Wallace from the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. And what we're dealing with here is easily addressed with just a little bit of knowledge. Now, if you remember last week in the lecture that I played by Dr. Dan Wallace, he talks about what textual critics or textual scholars talk about is what's called a textual variant. And so what we're going to do is we're going to listen to two short segments from Dr. Dan Wallace talking about textual variants. What is a textual variant? Now, what the people at the BBC have done is they've taken this idea, oh, there's 23,000 corrections in Codex Sinaiticus. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean we can't trust it, that it's got some kind of a fluid text? Does that mean that Christians, you know, we can't trust this thing, that it's corrupt to the core? The answer is no. <laughs> no, what we're dealing with here are variants within a particular text. And if you understand the nature of variants and what what the different types are, then you'll understand what's going on regarding Codex Sinaiticus and why textual scholars like Dan Wallace don't see Codex Sinaiticus as some kind of a threat. Instead, they understand the nature of these variants, and they have them categorized into their proper types, okay? So the BBC is telling us, oh, there's 23,000 different corrections going on in this text, and it's just terrible, and we can't trust it, and oh, this proves that the Bible's not inerrant. Now, keep this in mind. When we talk about inerrancy when it regards, in regards to Scripture, what is, what is said to be inerrant are the original autographs. And the goal of the, the primary goal of textual criticism is to understand and rightly figure out what those autographs said since they don't exist anymore. We do not have the autographs anymore. So looking at all of these different manuscripts, can we backwards engineer what the original autographs said? That's the whole goal of textual criticism. It's taking in all of the data from all of the texts and they're classified into all different families and uh, you can act, there's whole families of manuscripts, by the way, folks. And what you do then is you you rightly understand how to properly deal with what are called variants. Okay, a variant. And so we're here's um, Dan Wallace ex- defining for us what a textual variant is. And there's a little classical music playing in the background. Again, if you want to watch this entire lecture series, it's just really a top-notch introduction to the basics of textual criticism available for free at iTunes University. But here's uh, Dr. Dan Wallace. How do we 
define a textual variant? What constitutes a textual variant as far as textual criticism is concerned? That is, scholars determine how many numbers of variants we have among the manuscripts, and it's important to know what actually is a variant. A textual variant is any place in the wording of the text where there is a difference. Now, what this does not count is capitalization or punctuation, because the ancient manuscripts would not have had a distinction between the capitalized words and the non-capitalized words, and they didn't use any punctuation. So as far as the original text is concerned, neither capitalization nor punctuation are important. However, what is important is the wording, the word order, and even the spelling of words, and those all count as textual variants. There are essentially five types of textual variants that scholars uh, would recognize when it comes to the New Testament. The first is what's called an omission. That is, if you look at a particular text and you compare it to a manuscript and that manuscript lacks a word or more than one word, that would be called an omission. Another kind, just the opposite of this, is an addition. So you've got this manuscript that differs from the text that you're comparing it to and it adds a word or more than one word. That's called an addition. What's the size of omissions and additions? Well, the smallest, by definition, would be a single word. The largest is as much as 12 verses. And we have two places in the New Testament where 12 whole verses were either added to the text or were deleted from the text. It certainly cannot be, in either of these places, considered to be an unintentional change because two scribes in different parts of the ancient world could not possibly have come up with exactly the same wording for 12 verses. So there must be some kind of a genetic or genealogical connection, uh, connection among these manuscripts going back very early. The two places are John 7:53 through 8:11, the story of the woman caught in adultery, and we've discussed that in an earlier lesson. And the other place is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Those 12 verses are found in the majority of manuscripts, but our two earliest manuscripts lack them, and we'll talk about that in a later lecture. Now, notice this, okay? When you look at the entire body of all of the manuscripts we have, um, there's only two sections of the entire New Testament, 12 verses long each, the story of the woman caught in adultery and the long ending of Mark, where there's... You know, where there's major variance, if you would, uh, between manuscripts. Those are the only places, okay? So some of the manuscripts have them, some of the manuscripts don't. When it comes to uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery, you'll find that some manuscripts have it in the Gospel of John. Other manuscripts have that story plugged in in other uh, Gospels. But that's for a different discussion, okay? Right now, we're just getting an overview of the different types of variants. Now, notice that the BBC in their documentary, didn't take the time to distinguish the different types of variants. Oh, they were just really happy to report. There was 23 corrections, 23,000 corrections in Codex Sinaiticus without ever spending any time discussing the nature of those corrections, which would actually be variant readings. Because when you look and you work with Codex Sinaiticus, it's interesting. What it shows you is, is that even back then, uh, you know, the uh, whoever put this this manuscript together was aware of variant 
uh, variances, okay, between manuscripts. And so there was some attempt on the part of the, whoever put together Codex Sinaiticus and then later people who worked on it to try to hammer out the difference between these variances between the different texts that they even had at that time. And while well, church history is known about this variant readings, even Irenaeus, the uh, uh, the great Christian apologist of the second century, was talking about some of these variant readings that they had already at his time. Apart from those two places of 12 verses, the next largest textual variant that is found in English translation, in other words, the, the kind of variant that uh, most students of the Bible through translation know about, is only two verses long. And then we have uh, some that are one verse, so we've only got a couple dozen or so that are one or two verses, two places where it's 12 verses. And then we've got, after that, phrases and clauses and all the way down to individual words. And that number is in the tens of thousands, if not more, of omissions or additions at that stage. Besides omissions and additions, there are three other kinds of textual variants. One is a transposition, and this has to do with the word order change, where a word order can change in terms of just two words, where it's Jesus Christ versus Christ Jesus, and that's a typical textual variant we see in Paul's letters. Did he write Jesus Christ or did he write Christ Jesus? Those words are transposed very frequently among the manuscripts. Transpositions can also involve a number of larger uh, issues, and one manuscript, Codex Bezai, that's at Cambridge University, transposes at times as many as nine or ten words, so the order gets uh, in a different sequence. Yeah, by the way, you ask somebody like Dan Wallace, you know, which is the most, um, you know, you know, whimsically changed or altered text. It's this Codex Bezai that he's referring to, not Codex Sinaiticus. It makes sense, but that probably tells us that this scribe is copying out a text where he's grabbing whole bites at a time, large bitefuls at a time, and writing out what he thinks it should say. And uh, that's why this manuscript is probably the most bizarre manuscript among our New Testament texts in that it changes the text more than any other manuscript out there. Now, besides omission, addition, and transposition, we have substitution is the fourth kind of a textual variant. Substitution is simply the substitution of one word for another word. So, in John 4.1, when Jesus knew, or when the Lord knew. Is it Jesus or is it the Lord? That's a substitution. Those are the kinds of things we have as well. And when it comes to uh, these textual variants, sometimes you can get a combination where you can have a transposition of four or five words, but where you have an omission in another variant, or you have an addition, to, uh, addition in another variant after that. Or you might have these four or five words that are transposed, and there's a couple of substitutions in there. Each of those has to be treated as a discrete textual variant. Finally, there's what we might call a total rewrite, where the text is so different in one manuscript than what it is in another that we just give up and say we can't classify this by transposition and omission and substitution. It has to be just a total rewriting of the text. And again, it's Codex Bezai or Contrabrigensis at Cambridge that leads the charge in having total rewrites of the text. All right. Now that's the first segment that we're going to listen to. Now we're going to listen to a little bit more 
where um, where Dr. Wallace then describes the nature of textual variants. Now, keep in mind, when you uh, take a look at all of the nearly 6,000 manuscripts that we have, we are dealing with roughly 400,000 to 500,000 textual variants uh, among the entire corpus, the entire body of manuscripts that we currently have. Now, should this frighten us to make us think that, oh, we have no clue what the New Testament says? No, not at all. I mean, this is a this is a huge amount of data that actually makes us even more confident than ever that we actually have a really, really, really good a grasp of what the original autographs said. But let's talk about the nature of textual variants, because here the uh, the uh, BBC uh, wasn't really helpful. They just pointed out, oh, no, Codex Vaticanus, I, uh, sorry, Codex Sinaiticus, 23,000, 23,000 corrections and stuff. Well, that you know what that means. Without any uh, regard for the different types of variants that there are, nor giving you the nature of those variants, nor have they actually taken the time to calculate the percentage of the different types of variants. And the question that needs to be asked is, well, what is the nature of those corrections? What are the natures of those variants that we see within Codex Sinaiticus? Well, here's uh, Dr. Wallace to explain to us the nature of textual variants with a little bit more depth than the lecture that we heard last week. Uh, here we go again. The nature of these textual variants, these thousands upon thousands of variants that we have among our New Testament manuscripts. If one just had the number of 400,000 to 500,000 variants, one might think there's no way we could possibly get back to the original text of the New Testament. But when you examine the nature of these variants, now things come into view that you might not otherwise recognize. Here's a way we can categorize these variants. We can do it into four different groups and the two poles on each of these groups or in, the, in this categorization is meaningful on the one hand and viable on the other. By meaningful, what I mean is that it changes the meaning of the text to some degree. By viable, I mean that it has the likelihood or the possibility, a distinct possibility of going back to the original wording. Uh, and that means it has to be found in sufficient manuscripts either that are early enough or important enough or that could uh, plausibly go back to the wording of the original. You could refer to an earlier lesson on Matthew 27, 16 and 17 that has some fairly late manuscripts, but they are significant enough that they could go back to the original because they are belonging to their own textual family, and so that would be considered a viable variant. So meaningful and viable are the two poles, and here's the way we can categorize all textual variants. First, those that are neither meaningful nor viable. Second, those that are not meaningful but are viable. Third, those that are not viable but are meaningful. And fourth, those that are both meaningful and viable. Well, let's examine these. In, in this order. First, we'll start with those that are neither meaningful nor viable. That means that it doesn't affect the meaning of the text and they don't have much plausibility of going back to the original. In fact, we'll take this category with the next one, those that are not meaningful but are viable, and we'll group those two together. 
Well over 75% of all of our textual variants belong to these two categories. The most common kind of change we have among our manuscripts are spelling changes. And the most common spelling change we have among the manuscripts is what's called a movable new. This is the use of the letter N at the end of a word when the next word starts with a vowel. Now, keep this in mind. When you're working with Codex Sinaiticus, you're going to find a lot of the, the 23,000 corrections has to do with cleaning up grammar and misspellings. Does that change the nature and the meaning of a text? Nope, not at all. Do I put a, the letter N in there when I have a vowel afterwards? Well, just like in English, we have a book and apple. So in Greek, you have a movable new before a word that starts with a vowel. And the older manuscripts always had that new there. They didn't take it off. The later manuscripts start to nuance it, so they would drop the new when the next word started with a consonant. That's the most common textual variant we have among our New Testament manuscripts. It affects nothing. And so spelling differences, especially those that are not meaningful but may or may not be viable, account for a good 75% of all of our textual variants. The next group, those that are meaningful but not viable, is a significant group. And it's, uh, again, this, is, this will probably be about 24% or really more than 24%. So we're up to 99% now, okay? <laughs> Get this, okay? The first group, they are, uh, they're not meaningful. Uh, they're not, you know, and they're not viable. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the idea here is that they don't affect anything, you know. 74%, we're just talking about spelling errors and stuff. Here's the remaining portion. Now we're up to 99%. Uh, the the variants are meaningful, but there's no viability regarding them. So it's you got to understand in textual criticism these these men are this is a science this is a discipline where they're looking across this entire corpus of the, all of these different manu manuscripts and basically scientifically uh, looking at all of these different variant readings and there's a group of them where there's there, yeah there's a, there's a, some kind of a meaningful change here but there's high no, there's like a high probability that None of these change this this change in the text is actually viable. That means it goes back to the uh, the original autographs, and they have ways of identifying these. All of our textual variants belong to this category. They are variants where uh, it it makes for a significant change in the meaning of the text, but there's hardly any plausibility that that wording could go back to the original. It may be found in one late medieval manuscript or one group of versions that don't have a very good pedigree or a few church fathers that talk about a variant, but they don't really go back to the original. One of the uh, interesting ones is in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, and this really borders on neither meaningful nor viable, but in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, Paul says to the Thessalonians that we were little children among you, or he says we were gentle among you. Now those two variants are both meaningful and viable. It changes the meaning of the text whether Paul says we were gentle among you or we were little children. And many scholars would say it has to say gentle because it goes on it says like a nursing, uh, like a nursing mother. And so does this mean that Paul is saying we were little children among you like a nursing mother? That would be too harsh of a metaphorical shift for Paul. Uh, he does some things like this elsewhere but not quite that extreme. Or if you repunctuate the text, you could say, we were little children among you, period. Like a nursing mother cares for her children, something along those lines, Paul goes on and says that. So if you put a hard stop there, there is not nearly as 
uh, disruptive uh, metaphor uh, shift. However, gentle and little children, there's only one letter difference in Greek. It's either napioi or apioi. And the word that precedes it ends with a new. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, we have agonathemen napioi or agonathemen apioi. But read together, agonathemen napioi, what did I say? Did I say napioi or apioi? It's very difficult to tell, and consequently, this has created a, an extremely difficult textual problem for scholars to try to figure out. But there's another variant that sounds like apioi, sounds like napioi, but it's sufficiently different that it could not have been created quite in the same way that these uh, were created. And it only occurs in one late manuscript. It's the word hippoi. We became horses among you. Now, it's a funny variant. And uh, it's obvious that Paul and Silas could not have become horses in any capacity, no matter what you're thinking about. That, that makes no sense here. So most would say that's not a meaningful variant at all. But it may be that we've got a disgruntled USC fan when USC lost the uh, Rose Bowl against uh, the University of Texas in 2005. And so he says we became horses among it. Who knows? But uh, whatever the, the, the reason is, this is not at all a viable variant. There are plenty of these non-viable variants that are meaningful, but they just don't have a sufficient pedigree to go back to the original text. The smallest category of variants is those that are both meaningful and viable. This is less than 1% of all textual variants are both meaningful and viable variants. Now get that. Less than 1% of variants are meaningful and viable, okay? Which means that there's a possibility they could go back to the original text and they're just not sure what to do with them. And these statistics are arrived at by including texts like Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, as well as all of the other manuscripts that we have. When you take a look at the whole body, the whole corpus of all of this stuff, you know, you get you can see which manuscripts were copied after other ones. They have them organized in families, if you would. And and so when you take all of the data together, you come up with less than 1% are actually meaningful and viable variants that address that could that could potentially mean that the autograph had something significantly different that it said than uh you know you know in one group of manuscripts than it says in another that's and that's less than 1% and that includes all of the data coming in from codex Sinaiticus as well and you know again all of the data taken together we have nothing to fear from these so-called variants. Nothing, nothing whatsoever to fear because none of these meaningful and viable variants touch on the cardinal core doctrines of the Christian faith. It's intact. In fact, the vast majority of the text, more than 99% of it, we are we have very good confidence that we understand exactly what that is. And And again... That includes all of the data coming in from Codex Sinaiticus. So when you look at something like the BBC and you know, and them saying, "Oh, well, look at, you know, you can't trust the Word of God; it's not infallible." No one said that a copy of the autograph was the infallible Word of God. Everybody says that what was infallible is what the original author 
penned. And the question is, can looking at all of these manuscripts, and we have this huge amount of data, can we figure out what those autographs said? Well, we, we now can say we know with greater than 99% certainty uh, what the vast majority of, the, of uh, those autographs did say. Um, you know, and there's just a few texts left, less than 1%, uh, where there's still some questions about what to do with those. And that has to do with all of these fines that we have. So when the BBC attacks, you know, the Bible using uh, the so-called corrections in Codex Sinaiticus, um, understand this. They're engaging in, um, in, well, not telling you the entire story. So rather than throw Codex Sinaiticus under the bus... What you need to do is understand you got to do your homework and understand that um, folks that understand textual criticism and work with these manuscripts know all about all of these things. And it, it doesn't cause them to lose their faith because, well, they know the rest of the story. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. I have to make a decision. I think we can still squeeze in both of our sections before we go to our sermon review. I think we can do it. Stay tuned. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay... Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. C could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Sure. 
get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. <laughs> Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh, thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. All right, we're back. Uh, Warning, liberal secular outlets are not necessarily interested in defending the historicity and reliability of the New Testament. It's best if you test their claims. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it. To the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would 
would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, I'm going to kind of shake things up here. We'll do our uh, money-grubbing televangelist update. That would be Brian Houston down there at Hillsong. Uh, in order to do that, we got to do this, though. Don't want no loving. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats. Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. All the narrow wanna be a millionaire. Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition. That's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits. I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos. Let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of oof. And whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. Any sum I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. back collector, I'm a paper bill inspector, I'm a savage for that cabbage man, to me is golden nectar, pour that filthy lucre on me, spread those loving germs upon me, money, 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 and if they ever plant trees of enormous unum, I want to be the guy that they send out to Brewerum, oh give me money, there we go, Dr. Teeth and money, money. Money. Now, um, I went through the archives today of Fighting for the Faith, and I could not find, not that it has never occurred, I, I just, I don't think I've ever covered somebody actually twisting Psalm 23. Y'all familiar with Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We've all heard this uh, psalm before, but I bet you've never heard anybody twisting it, well, the way you're about to hear uh, Brian Houston of Hillsong down there in Australia twisting it. Here's Brian Houston explaining it to us how lack in any area of life can diminish or limit our potential. Mm-hmm. Here we go. I believe want makes potential smaller. Want, lack, it makes God's purposes in your life smaller. And David, he makes a commitment there. The commitment is, I shall not want. Uh, No, in Psalm 23, David is not making a commitment saying, I shall not want. God is my shepherd. With the Lord leading me, I shall not want. Yeah, see, that means God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? Um, No, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Um, I don't know if you've all have ever seen shepherds shepherding sheep. 
Um, but the one thing I've noticed about sheep is that uh, they're, they don't usually wear diamond rings or drive Mercedes Benzes and things like that. Um, so <clears throat> when David saw, you know, writes the song, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's not talking about making sure, yeah, I, I'm making a commitment here. I am not going to be in lack. I'm going to have all kinds of bling and things. Uh, that's not what he's saying. Verse 5, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Two contrasting concepts. One is want or lack. The other is overflow. My cup runs over. And what's David's commitment? His commitment... No, David's not making a commitment in Psalm 23. It is, I shall not want, my cup runs over. I shall not want, my cup runs over. Yeah, this is how a money-grubbing televangelist would, well, predictably twist this passage to somehow make, oh, we, this is about David making a commitment to not have lack in his life, and you need to make that commitment as well. <clears throat> we'll talk about this in just a second, but I want him to spin this out just a little bit more. I shall not lack. My cup overflows. My cup overflows. I shall not want. My cup overflows. Which do you think is the will of God for people's lives? Lack or overflow? Ah, which is the will of God for people's lives? Lack or overflow? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Luke chapter 16. You know, isn't it weird that he just throws out this question without actually, you know, grounding this properly in a, in a right understanding of biblical text? Because Psalm 23 is not David saying, I'm making a commitment to not have lack and I'm going to have overflow. Um, what is talk, what it's talking about there? God is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. He's going to care for us and give us everything that we need. And it also says that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, okay? That is, see, Psalm 23 is not a promise of prosperity. It's not a promise of you overcoming lack. That's not what this text is about. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. I, I, I wonder how somebody like Brian Houston out there in a, at Hillsong, you know, again, he's a money-grubbing televangelist type down there in Australia, what he would do with Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. Now, pay cl- close attention, see who has, who's suffering from lack and who is experiencing abundance. His cup is overflowing, if you would. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Didn't have any lack, did he? And he ate, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Mm-hmm. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Well... All right, so we got a story of abundance and we got a story of lack here. You know, Lazarus is lacking. He's lacking food. He's lacking health. He's lacking all kinds of things, okay? And then in verse 22, it says he died. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man, he also died and he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Whoa, wait a second here. 
that poor man, if it's really God's will for him to have abundance in this life, as, as if somehow that's what God was all about, you being prosperous and having not having lack, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm making a commitment to not have any want. You know, Lazarus here, he had nothing but want while he was on earth. But you know what he had that uh, the rich man didn't have? Faith. He trusted in Yahweh for the forgiveness of his sins and for his salvation. Because he trusted Yahweh, he was wealthy, even though by earthly appearances he was a complete and abject failure who suffered from lack, right? So here we go. So uh, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So the, and the rich man, he's in torment, and he sees Lazarus with Abraham. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Gives you a picture of what hell is like. Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Your cup runneth over, right? And uh, Lazarus, in like manner, well, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if somebody should rise from the dead. So don't think for a second that the Scriptures teach, Oh, God, it's His will all the time for you to have nothing but prosperity and no lack in your life. You might be suffering immensely, here in this lifetime. But don't think for a second God has abandoned you. He hasn't. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. He will care for you. He has promised to care for you and to meet your needs. And in the next life, the abundance of the heavenly banquet feast is all yours. Repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And don't twist the scriptures to make them say these types of things that they do not say. Let's listen a little bit more to Brian Houston. What which do you have expectation for in your life? Lack or overflow? You see, lack has such a hold of people's lives and don't have a one concept. I thought sin had a hold of people's lives, not lack. Don't have a one-dimensional concept of lack. Lack could be a lack of resources or a lack of finance, but it might be a lack of wisdom. It could be a lack of judgment. It could be a lack of confidence. It could be a lack of could be a lack of understanding right biblical hermeneutics. Self-esteem. Oh, do you lack self-esteem? Oh, man, you don't want to have that. It's God's will for you to have abundant self-esteem. It's nonsense. Some people, lack is a lack of ideas, a lack of creativity. Lack. A lack of ideas and creativity. Oh, no, what's happening to the world? Can be a perceived lack of talent. Lack comes in many ways, but what it does is diminishes, it decreases. And I don't believe for one... Yeah, notice it's lack doing this, not sin. This is a false gospel through and through. 
second it's the will of God for your life for you to live your life in lack I pray we'll have the same spirit that David has that recognizes God's leadership God's shepherding in our lives and out from that we have that firm commitment I shall not want I shall overflow I shall not want I shall overflow I- oh man so there you go you got the idea I mean talk about heading off on the wrong foot Psalm 23 is not a great prosperity gospel passage. If The only way you can come to that conclusion is by twisting it, only focusing on certain portions of it, and then engaging in that kind of hermeneutical nonsense. Moving along. From the Gospel Coalition website, fantastic article, by the way, um, from <clears throat> Jared Wilson. The name of the article is How Your Preaching Might Increase Sin in Your Church. Provocative title, and he's absolutely right, but uh, let me explain uh, by reading this what's going on here. How preaching might increase sin in your church. And we're not talking about by twisting scripture. We're actually talking about not properly distinguishing between law and gospel. Jared uh, writes, he says, uh, actually he starts with Romans chapter 8 verse 3, which reads, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Here's what Jared writes. He says, We tread lightly here, but I fear we vastly underestimate the spiritual damage inflicted on our churches by how-to sermons without an explicit gospel connection. The Bible is full of practical exhortations and commands, of course, but they are always connected to the foundational and empowering truth of the finished work of Christ. When we preach a message like six sets to blank or uh, another to be a better whatever type of message, where the essential proclamation is not what Christ has done but what we ought or need to do, we become preachers of the law rather than Christ, and it is not rare that this kind of message with barely any or no mention of Christ at all gets preached. But is it just merely unfortunate, something that could be improved but not really that big of a deal? I think the scriptures show us that this kind of preaching isn't just off-center, but actually does great harm and actually serves the to accomplish the very opposite of its intended goal. How? Well, number one, preaching even a positive practical message with no gospel centrality amounts to preaching the law. We are accustomed to thinking of legalistic preaching as that which is full of thou shalt nots, the kind of fundamentalist hellfire and brimstone judgmentalism we've nearly all rejected. But do is just the flip side of the same coin don't is on. The coin is the law. And a list of do's divorced from the done of the gospel is just as legalistic, even if it's preached by a guy in jeans with wax in his hair, following up the rock and set by your worship band. That's right. Yeah, do is as legalistic as don't. Rather, and see, all the do's in the Bible and the don'ts in the Bible, they're connected back to the done. That's Jesus. Point two. The message of the law, unaccompanied by and untethered from the central message of the gospel, condemns, because besides telling us stuff to do, the law also thereby reveals our utter inability to measure up. Number three, therefore, a steady dose of gospel-deficient practical preaching doesn't make Christians more empowered, more effective, but more discouraged and less empowered because the law has no power in itself to fulfill its expectations. The only thing the Bible calls power for the Christian is the grace of Christ in the gospel. But it gets more serious than that. 
The Bible goes further to suggest, actually, that without the gospel of Christ's finished work, the preaching of the law of works serves to exacerbate disobedience. See Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and Romans chapter 7 for this consideration. The law arouses passions eventually against itself or against its referent. In other words, without the saving power of the gospel, we go one of two ways in having the law preached to us. We end up being pushed to disobey, whether from anger at its judgment or discouragement from the inability to keep it, or we end up thinking ourselves righteous apart from the righteousness the law really points to, that of Christ. Five, the law brings death. See Romans chapter 7, verse 10. So the preaching of practical relevant application do messages aimed at producing victorious Christians is fundamentally a preaching of condemnation. It is the proclamation of grace, counterintuitive though it seems, and oddly enough, that trains us to obey God. See Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Six, the preaching of Christless gospel deficient practical sermons increases self-righteousness because it is not focused on Christ's work, but on our works. Christ implicit gospel deficient practical sermons do not make empowered victorious Christians, but self-righteous self-sovereigns and the self-righteous go to hell. Again, we tread lightly, but the stakes are high, and I think they are higher than we tend to think. Brothers, let us preach the practical implications and exhortations of Scripture, yes, but let us not forget that the message of Christianity is Christ. It is the message of the sufficiency and power of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Let us not preach works lest we increase the sinfulness of our churches and unwittingly facilitate the condemnation of of the lost, or as First Corinthians two two says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was a fantastic article, don't you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. A sermon that psychoanalyzes Judas. Yeah, talk about missing a point. Eh, stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform. But it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Uh, try it on. It's uh really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Our number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Yeah, engaging in speculative psychoanalyzing of biblical characters, probably not a good idea. Scripture's job given to pastors is to preach the word, not engage in psychoanalysis. Yeah, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, but you got to hear it to believe it. (laughs) So um, we've got to do this right, though, which requires me to do, well, this. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via LCBC in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. John Wilkinson, their high school pastor, presiding. The name of the sermon we will be reviewing is entitled Thrift Shop Out of Control. It's all about um, not being a control freak. Okay. Um, And the problem is it doesn't actually engage in biblical exegesis 
but actually engages in something called eisegesis, reading something into the biblical text that isn't there. And this will be accomplished today as we will be hearing something about the story of Judas. It will be accomplished via, well, psychoanalysis. Yep, grab some popcorn, assume the crash position. I'm going to go ahead and kill the music and we'll get right into it. Here's Thrift Shop Out of Control. Here we go. Now, I was a young kid at the time, uh, five or six years old. And so you have to forgive me if some of the details are a little bit sketchy. But I'm going to tell you a story about something uh, that happened to me that was extremely interesting. Uh, And I'm sure you'll find it be interesting as well. Like I said, about five or six years old. It's about spring prom season. You know, like where the guys and the girls, they get together and being five or six years old, my sister's about 12 years older than me. She was real excited about the prom. There was a problem though, is that my sister and my mother, they weren't really seeing eye to eye on what types of guys were suitable for the prom. And I'm talking about a period of time in which, um, well, let's just say the hippie era, you know, it had... It's like the tail end of it. We're talking late 70s, early 80s, like the extreme tail end of the hippie era had ended. And, and none of my sister's boyfriends got that memo. You know, they were kind of <laughs> little interesting in terms of who they were and what they looked like. And, you know, being five or six years old, you kind of paid attention to some of this stuff. I mean, it was very interesting when these people showed up and being able to read the the atmosphere, the emotional environment that was going on. My sister, the boy, my mother, and all that kind of thing. And he shows up in a baby blue tuxedo. Oh, yeah. It's got the, like, little ruffles. Basically, it looks like, he looks like a human birthday cake. You know, it's just kind of like... <laughs> and he had this nervous laugh. You know, he's like... <laughs> And, you know, even at five or six years old, I was like, why, dude, why are you laughing like that, you know? Well, my mom is a little bit on the overprotective side. And if you know my mother, that's an understatement. And uh, so she goes through a couple things. And one of the things she goes through is, you know, this is the curfew. It's time to bring her back home. Nervous laughter. (laughs) I'm like, that's not good. No, you don't laugh when my mom says curfew time. So they leave. They get in the uh, car, you know, they go out the driveway. Our driveway is kind of long and it's got some uh, gravel. And as they take off, it was like (laughs) laying some rubber, which he thought was really cool. Not cool to my mom. No, that was like the last word. You know what I mean? Like I got the last word. I'm taking off. My mom stewed for the next five or six hours. This guy laid rubber in our our driveway. What do you what are you crazy? <laughs> my mom is uh, a professional steward, you know, like an obsessive thinker, the type of person that's like, how dare he? I can't believe. And did you see? And what about? And he better not think that he's going to all that for the next five or six hours. And when you're five or six, you know, if I had walked into a church and, you know, was uh, arrived late, you know, was sitting down and this is what I was hearing, I'd think, am I in the right place? Um, I think I rented the wrong building. I, you know, I'm expecting to hear a sermon. I don't know what this is. Six years old, like, this is better than TV. (laughs) This is awesome, right? You're like, what's going to happen? She's going to go ninja on him. You know, like he is done. 
So, of course, it's bedtime for me, but you know this is a late night, you know, and I've got the perfect front row seat. It's the windowsill, and I just sit there and wait, you know. Well, curfew time came and went. Bad news. Wasn't just minutes. We're talking hours. He rolls up and comes up, actually has the nerve to walk up with her. Up the, I'm like, oh, man. I didn't say a word. I didn't want to, like, he picked the wrong lady to mess with. Okay. So my mom is uh, there at the door waiting for them. Okay. Hours late. She's in that mother nightgown thing. It's like a shower curtain with a bow, you know. As he draws close, as he gets close enough to see and look at the doorway, he sees her there in her mother nightgown and a double barrel shotgun. For real. I was like, you can't pay enough money to see this. He lets out a yip and like totally takes off, completely runs, jumps in the car and takes off. My sister's mortified. All you moms out there in the audience, a couple of you are like, so? And your point is, the question here is, was that too much? Did she go overboard? You know, as she's sitting there with the double barrel shotgun. She didn't. So let me see if I got this straight. You're asking the question, did she go too far? She brandished a weapon. Yeah, I think she might have gone too far. Um, but what does this have to do with sound biblical doctrine and the gospel? I didn't even need to say anything. It was game, set, match. You're done. Basically, it's saying date is over and it's never going to happen again. Get inside. You know, so uh, I think that there is a fine line between concerned parent and overprotective control freak, right? And there is a big line there. And, and I bet there are some people going, I would have done exactly what she did. But really, the question is a great one. At what point do we take control and take things into our own hands? And at what point do we trust God? Because we're in this series called Thrift Shop. And, and really, we're talking a lot about value. We talk about how we value ourselves, how we value other people. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about how we value ourselves. Today, we're going to be looking at how we value other people. And especially, how do we communicate value to other people when they're staring down the double barrel of our desire to control them or to control other people? And I'm sure hearing this subject, you might have thought of your own mother shotgun moments, right? And maybe they weren't mothers. Maybe they were, and, and this is where I would, you know, listening to this, I would start automatically thinking of people in my life that need to hear this message, right? I wouldn't think of myself. I would think of other people. And the people I would think of would be as follows. When I came out of schooling and I went into my first church to work as a youth pastor, I was very excited to get to work. Uh, I went to, went to work in this church that's a little more conservative. Baptist church, loved it. Had a great time there. Learned a ton. But I also had a person that was a supervisor that was essentially Sigmund Freud, Okay. Once a week, I would meet with him, and he would sit there with this large legal pad. Tell me about some of the things you did last week. Well, uh, we had a water balloon blast where we threw water balloons at each other. Tell me how that. Kids got wet and had a great time. Interesting. You know, talk about micromanaging. How many balloons did you use? You know, that type of thing wasn't the best 
a place for a very creative mind, you know. So I had a great time, but, it, you know, there's a little bit of the micromanaging thing there. A person- it wasn't the best place for a creative mind. Oh, yeah, poor but Yeah, poor guy. I mean, nothing worse than, you know, having a creative mind and being stuck in a conservative church. <laughs> what is this? Someone to exert some control, and I just thought, oh, okay, I'm feeling a little bit of the, the control factor going on here. Uh, and then another friend who is in the choir who always came up to me every week and said, you don't have a suit. I was like, you're right. <laughs> so I didn't own a suit, and I wasn't real hip on wearing a suit, so I, I compromised, you know, and I put on the blue blazer. The blue blazer, the khaki slacks, you know what I mean? And you call them slacks in church. So blue blazer, khaki slacks, and the red tie. I was like, you know, the church version of the young Republicans, okay? So I thought I was covered, you know, and I kept them in my office. I didn't even take them home. I wore what I wanted to wear during one service and then changed into, you know, professional guy. Well, this one person, her name was Pam. She kept telling me, hey, you you don't have a suit. You should get a suit. You should get a suit. You should get a suit. Talk about, like, controlling. Christmas time rolls around. I get a Christmas card from Pam. It's kind of thick. I open up the Christmas card. Merry Christmas. Get a suit. There's a gift card inside of it for a men's suit warehouse. 200 bucks. I was like, that's awesome. I'm going to buy a suit. It's sitting in my closet. But, you know, I at least have a suit now. That's the kind of thing I would think of when I think of people that want to control. I wouldn't necessarily think of me. I would think of my girlfriend's mother in college. She sat across from me and lectured me for an hour and a half with the refrain, you are a fox in my hen house. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> Talk about control. Those are the people I would think of when I'm talking about control. And when I talk about control freaks or people being pushy, those are the people that I think of. But to be honest with you, we are all, to some degree, control freaks. Every one of us. Oh, well, there's quite a confession. (laughs) You know, notice that so far in this sermon, everybody, I mean, this guy is a free and creative spirit. And anybody who would try to help him out, you know, like getting him a suit for church or something like that, is a control freak. Uh Uh-huh. But, of course, he's normal. But don't worry. He just confessed that on some level, I'm sure he's a control freak in some ways. Again, what does this have to do with sound biblical doctrine and Christianity and preaching God's word so that we understand what it means? We really are. We would rather play God than trust God with the details of our lives. It's true. And, And some to a greater degree than others. But we are all control freaks. And if you doubted that fact, Inc. Magazine had a great little quiz on whether or not we're control freaks. So we're going to do that. Inc. Magazine. Inc. has a quiz on determining whether or not you're a control freak. So we're, we're not even in the Bible at all. Okay. Do that today. We're going to take a little quiz. I want you to answer yes or no to this. I want you to keep tabs on whether or not this particular, I'm going to give you eight scenarios or eight ideas. If that agrees with you, I want you to like tick it down. I don't know how far you want to go in terms of controlling this. Write it down. Remember it, whatever it is. But if you score over two, you got issues with control. Okay. If you score over four, you've got serious issues. If you get all eight, um, I don't know what to do for you. You know, it's, 
Looking pretty- yeah, yeah, because Inc. Magazine, I mean, you know, this is a definitive test. And, you know, of course, if you score more than four, I mean, because everybody recognizes that Inc. Magazine is like the uber authority when it comes to psychoanalysis. Pretty bad. All right, so number one, this will be fun. Uh, you believe that if someone would change one or two things about themselves, you'd be happier. So you try to help them change this behavior by pointing it out usually over and over and over again. It's like Pam with a, you don't have a suit. You don't have a suit. I'll buy him a suit. Okay, that's you. Check yourself off. Number two, you micromanage others to make them fit your often unrealistic expectations. You don't, even, you don't believe in imperfection and you don't think anyone else should either. All right, so I would... You don't believe in imperfection? What does that mean? I would guess that most of you are feeling pretty good right now. Okay, that's not really me. You know, I mean, these are very subjective type of ideas here. We're about to you know, buckle your seatbelt because it gets a little rougher here. Number three, you judge others' behaviors as right or wrong and passive-aggressively withhold attention until they fall in line with your expectations. Every one of us probably has been guilty of that. I mean, sitting in silent judgment is a master form of control. Master form of control. Number four, you offer constructive criticism as a veiled attempt to advance your own agenda. You know, you're working with a bunch of people on something and you say, well, I'm not really sure that's working quite like that. Well, I'm, why don't you try this idea? All right, so we got four out of eight so far. Everybody doing okay? You feeling all right? All right, take a deep breath. Here we go. Number five. You change who you are or what you believe so that someone will accept you. Instead of just being yourself, you attempt to pull in others by managing their impression of you. Now, here's my question. Let's hypothetically just say, okay, you take this test and you find out, oh, no, I'm a control freak. Okay. Um, What's the solution? Don't be a control freak? Or is the solution the shed blood of Christ? Is being a control freak a sin? I mean, I'm assuming because he's talking so negatively about it that this is not beneficial behavior. But, I mean, is this something that Christ died for? I'm I'm trying to figure out where the connection point is between what he's saying and what the scriptures really teach. Because at this point, the, the two are not actually connecting. I mean, how many times have we done that in our lives? How many times have we done that last month? Always thinking of how other people perceive you and trying to manage that. You could be a control freak. Number six. You present worst-case scenarios in an attempt to influence someone away from certain behaviors and towards other behaviors. They have another name for this. It's called Facebook. Yeah. Get on there and be like, this is ridiculous. There's no way anybody should be doing this. And you want everybody to believe like you. And so give yourself a point for that. Number seven. You have a hard time with ambiguity and being okay with not knowing something. Now, I want to explain this a little bit because this offends me. Okay. I do have a hard time with ambiguity, and most of the times it comes from me. But anyhow, I am not okay with not knowing something. But it's not so much about details or information. It's more about being nosy. Like if you know other people know stuff about knowing something, how about this? 
just explaining that, if you're like, wait, what? Then you might be a control freak, right? <laughs> you want to know what other people are talking about or what other people are thinking. If you've ever been described as nosy, give yourself a point. Number eight, you intervene on behalf of people by trying to explain or dismiss their behaviors to others. Oh, I just got to do this. You know what I mean? This is me, totally. I think, well, no, they're totally missing that person. So I'll just go tell them so that they understand this person, what they really meant. Managing people, you might be a control freak. Now, depending on whatever you scored out of those eight, I would say that most of us, to some degree or another, we've got to come to this point where we realize that, hey, you know what? I would rather control situations than let them happen. And it's human to some degree. It means I get to manage the outcome. But the problem with that is that it only works well when you're God. When you try to manage things, when you try to control the outcome of stuff, and it involves other people. Now, keep in mind, I mean, God actually tries to manage the outcomes when it comes to what happens on Sunday mornings regarding the sermon, if you would. The job of the pastor, according to Scripture, is to what? Preach the Word. Now, this isn't my standard. This is God's standard. That's not happening at LCBC this particular morning, whenever this was preached. We're not getting the word of God, and it gets worse. And other people's lives, that doesn't work real well unless you're God. Because God is the only one who knows what is best. You might know what's best for you and try to get everybody else to line up behind it, but it's going to blow up in your face because God is the only one who knows what works best for everyone. And that's hard to accept. It's, it's very difficult to explain. Now, that's, that sounds all Christianish, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like, but he's not actually pulling that out of any biblical passage. Now, granted, I understand that if we talk about the attributes of God, we can come to this conclusion, but I think it's based to best it, um, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's best to base it. Man, I can't believe I flipped those two. I think it's best to base it on a biblical passage rather than to just make these assertions about God philosophical at that without the grounding in the biblical text. Except it's so hard to accept. I mean, if you go back to the earliest parts of the Old Testament that kind of explains some of our behavior as humans. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Let's see what he does with this. They're kind of a snapshot of how God had created. God created people. And then there was something that happened where people just kind of wanted to do their own thing. They pushed away from God and they kind of established their own deal. And the result from that, the the first three chapters of Genesis are very instructive. And sometimes people are tempted to think, well, it's just a story. I don't know if I really buy into it. It just seems like a tale. Well, Jesus refers to the events of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So I trust Jesus. I trust him. If, If he knew that those events that happened in the beginning really transpired, then I trust him. So I have a deep, deep belief that in those first three chapters of Genesis, the, the stuff that was described there was there was something deep going on. Something deep going on. Yeah, whatever's there, I, I, it's deep. Okay, I, I'm just going to go with Jesus and say what happened in Genesis is really how it went down. That's history. It's more than just deep. And I think there's something very uh, psychological that's taking place. Something psychological taking place. Okay. Because we're tempted to think, okay, well, it's all about fruit, right? 
God said, don't eat this fruit. You can eat that fruit. And we didn't eat that fruit, so we disobeyed. So God was upset at us and then sin entered the world. That's the way a lot of people might understand this first. I think sin entered the world when man rebelled against God. I mean, even the way he's telling this story, I mean, isn't even remotely trying to pay any attention to the biblical details. There's a couple opening chapters of Genesis. But it's not about fruit. It was about fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, this is how it went. God created humans, seemed like everything was great. And then some point along the way, humans said, you know what? God said, don't eat from the tree. Don't eat from the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you got to kind of put that together in your head and say, okay, so there's fruit on a tree that if you were to eat it, would somehow give you knowledge of what good and evil was. So how did they know what good and evil was before then? From God. And so really what's being set up here in the first three chapters of Genesis is very simple. God's saying, hey, follow me. Just trust me. I'll I'll show you what you need to know. If you ever have a question, just come to me. I'm walking around here. Just talk to me. I'll let you know. And then he says, oh, by the way, don't, don't eat from that tree because that tree... I just want to save that for something else, okay? Just, just don't touch that. And when the notice, he's he's not reading the story from Genesis three, so he's retelling it from the lens of psychology. I mean, now the details are changing. It sounds something close to the story, but that's the problem. It's kind of close to the story, but there's other stuff, new details that are thrown in there that are not there. Keep in mind, the Bible warns very sternly about adding to the biblical text, which is exactly what he's doing. Humans looked at that. They thought, boy, if I can get the fruit from that tree, I can be just like God. And if I can be just like God, I can make my own decisions. And if I can make my own decisions, I have control. Okay, so now we've got the Garden of Eden retold through the story of Adam and Eve, the first control freaks. Notice no mention of the serpent. Weird. Supremely psychological stuff going on here. And I think it's at the root of who we are as humans. That's why I put a lot of faith in it. And I think what God's trying to tell us is that this battle back and forth between humans and God, it's about that control idea. We want to control when God's just asking us to trust him. That's really all it is. It's really all that it comes down to. They were tempted, not by fruit, but by control. And that's what they wanted. And a great example of this, I think, comes from a very unlikely place. And we're going to turn here in a second. We're going to talk about, in the New Testament, one of the disciples that we hardly ever focus on. His name is Judas. And he's known as the betrayer. And Judas, and from his life, we want to look at... He's known as the betrayer. Uh huh. <laughs> Because he, he, he was the betrayer. His thread through the New Testament, at least through the end of the book of Matthew, we want to look at his story as he weaves through. We show, we see that the gospel writer, Matthew, was explaining to us that Judas went through several steps in the life of a controller that we can learn from and try to stay away from. So I'm going to ask you to turn. So Matthew's great gospel tells us about the steps, the several steps that Judas, the light, who is, you know, basically he's giving us a, a biography, if you would, of the life of a control freak. What? Where did you get any of this? 
in your Bibles. Your Bibles are in your seats. You just kind of take them out. We're going to ask you to uh, open up your Bibles because it's real important what we're looking at here. You're going to open up to page 758. Actually, make that 757. And what I want to do, and this is why I'm asking you to take out your Bibles and kind of follow along. We're going to skip through a bunch of different passages. Uh, We're just going to follow the thread of Judas. And as we follow that thread, uh, we're going to see him kind of descend and actually diverge in his path from where Jesus was walking. So, okay, here we are. Page 757, Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests. And he asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. A couple notes here real quick. Okay, take a note. He just read the passage. From that point on, Judas looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus. You'll need to know this later in the sermon. We continue. Uh, 30 pieces of silver would have been about half a year's wages of of just someone who is uh, just entering the workforce. So maybe fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. It's nothing to laugh at, but it's definitely not something you can go retire on. I mean, it's, it's a good chunk of change. So how much will it cost if I hand them over to you, give you fifteen or twenty grand? And it wasn't so much that they needed somebody to betray him. They needed someone who could show what was the best time and where was the best place to come and arrest him without people starting a mob. You get that? It wasn't so much they needed Judas, but Judas just made it that much easier to come in quietly and take him away. All right, so, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, basically think like, okay, it's a big holiday occasion. A certain, uh, I'm sorry, uh, festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says my time has come, and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. Next verse, when it was evening, Jesus sat down. Okay, I'm going to ask a a question here. Do you think that Matthew wrote this portion of his gospel in order to provide us with the hidden keys for us to unlock, you know, kind of the how to not be a control freak in your life? Or did he write this portion of his gospel, in fact, all of his gospel, in order to tell us about Christ's sufferings and death, his passion for us on the cross when he was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities? Do you think Matthew's motivation was psychoanalysis or God the Holy Spirit's motivation for writing this portion of Scripture was psychoanalysis into the character of Judas, the guy who literally handed Jesus over and betrayed Jesus and it led to his death so that you can learn how to not be a control freak? We're talking about the very details of Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and execution. And we're doing psychoanalysis here on the Judas character. Down at the table with the 12 disciples. While they're eating bread, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Now, this is supposed to be a festive occasion. It's supposed to be a holiday meal. And he brings up something heavy like this. And, of course, it brings about a great amount of anxiety. Greatly distressed, verse 22. Each one asked in turn, am am I the one? Is it me? How about me? 
He replied, one of you who have just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. So the Scriptures declare that the Son of Man must die. Why? Because he's pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. We're not going to talk about the gospel here. Don't think that, that we're going to actually get the gospel in this sermon. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. So then Judas pipes up. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Translation, yeah. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, take this and eat, for this is my body. He's now starting this uh, kind of like a new ritual. He's starting a new ritual, almost a new contract that he's uh, initiating with his disciples. You mean new covenant, right? Disciples and the disciples of the disciples, all the way down to us. We call, um, we call it communion. So what's interesting about this, John actually follows this in his gospel. And he gives us the missing information from Matthew. He says, before they even got to this point, Jesus dismisses Judas. Go and do what you need to do. And then John says this, as soon as Judas went out, it was night. So there's this sense of like something heavy is about to happen. So as Jesus continues on. He says, take this and eat it for it is my body. Verse 27. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. So, so real kind of deep mood is going on here. And Judas is gone. And so they all leave and they go out on this hill where Jesus prays. We're going to skip a little bit. We're just going to follow the thread of just Judas for right now. We're going to go down to 47, which is on the next page, 758. And in verse 47, after Jesus has been talking to the disciples, all of a sudden it brings us back into it. Even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and the elders of the people, the traitor, Judas, who had given them the prearranged signal, you will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. Now, interesting here, Matthew takes great pains to kind of tell us something here. He arranges a signal to kiss his master. And now a kiss back then from a disciple to a master was kind of like a two sides, very quick, and you kind of move on with it. But Matthew uses an interesting word here that kind of gives us the idea that he kept kissing him. And obviously not like a romantic kiss, but like the kind of kiss that was like expectant, excited. Almost like he hung on him like, yes, this is it. There's this air of expectancy of this prolonged... Yeah, because remember he just read the text in Matthew that says that he was then looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Yeah, he's... The, finally, the opportunities come. He can fulfill his duty. He's betraying Jesus. Another one of the Gospels tells us that when Judas had left the uh, Lord's Supper, that Satan entered into him. Okay? He was possessed at this point. The episode of greeting his master where something's about to happen. 
So it's really interesting that Matthew particularly chooses this word. He says, and he spent time greeting him, kissing him. And it almost as if he was expecting something to happen. And then Jesus' reaction to him, he says, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. In other words, don't draw this out. So something happens there. Judas is excited about something. All right, so let's skip a little bit because we know what happens. Jesus gets taken in by these band of thugs. He gets taken into the Sanhedrin. They kind of uh, have their uh, say. They, they mock him. They spit on him. And basically the idea is to kill him. Judas gets wind of this and look, look what happens the next day. Skip down to chapter 27, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. Something changed. Remember, the last time we saw him, he was greeting his master with repeated kisses. With this idea of, like, something great's going to happen. And then the next morning... He finds out that they're going to kill him. And instantly, he's filled with remorse. My guess is that whatever happened during the nighttime, in Judas's mind, it didn't turn out the way he wanted it to. So, when Judas, start in verse 3 here. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. Well, what do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple, and he went out, and he hanged himself. Now, there are a couple different explanations, a couple different traditional interpretations for what goes on in the mind of Judas. Because honestly, I have no idea what was going on in Judas's mind. Now, notice something that's going on here. It's a couple of... Traditional interpretations, the traditional ones that he will mention here are actually based upon texts and what those texts reveal regarding the character of Judas. But uh, what this guy is going to do isn't going to be based upon text. It's going to be based upon an interpretation he feels that he has the freedom to give us based upon psychoanalysis. I can come up with a few ideas that I think are, are, are pretty close to what really happened, but we don't, we don't really know. The Bible doesn't really tell us. And the traditional interpretation, there's, there's two of them. One is that Judas was real interested in money because he was the treasurer of the group. He was the- yes, and there's biblical texts that tell us that he was greedy and he pilfered and he got into the money bag and all that kind of stuff. There are texts that tell us that about Judas. So that could be one of the motivations. The guy that held the money bag. And in another gospel, it talks about how not only did he hold the money bag, but he actually used to help himself to money from time to time. He pilfered. And then we know from another example that there was a woman who stood behind Jesus who broke an expensive jar of of perfume and, and put it on Jesus. And it was at that point that Judas was like, oh my gosh, look what you've done. We could have used this money for something better than this. So you almost have this idea that maybe Judas was preoccupied with money. And, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars it's nothing to sneeze at. But I don't know. I don't think that really fits the mood of what's going on here. It doesn't sound like... It doesn't fit the mood. Oh, okay. What's the mood? How do you determine the mood? Like he's that interested in money. It sounds like he's interested in something else. 
So I don't think it was just the money. There are some other people that would say that maybe he was really closely linked with a group of people that were like zealots. They were like fundamentalists. You know, when you, when you see the headlines from Egypt where people are like jumping up and down in town squares and, and screaming and yelling and they want revolution to happen. There was a group of people that were a lot like that. And Judas may have been tied to those people. They called them the Sakari, and they had daggers strapped to them constantly. They were just waiting for somebody to like rise up. Say, yeah, let's throw Rome off of us because they couldn't stay in Rome. And so maybe Judas was aligned with these types of people. Maybe, except for uh, the zealot among the disciples was named Simon, not Judas. And because Jesus, after a few years of hanging out with Jesus and realizing he wasn't that kind of person, maybe Judas just got upset. And he's like, look, we got to do something and... Jesus isn't going to do it, so let's get rid of him. Let's get somebody else in here who's going to do something. Maybe, maybe, maybe. What are we doing in here? This is all speculation. And maybe that's why Judas betrayed him. But that still doesn't answer the question, why was Judas all excited when the robbers came? You know, if I, uh, when, when the chief priest and, and the, the, the band of thugs that he, that he brought, why... Why was he going up to Jesus and kissing him repeatedly, almost expectantly saying something great's going to happen? I wouldn't do that. If I led a bunch of people to get the master that I've been with. Oh, you wouldn't do that. Well, that tells us. I mean, you, we better go with your interpretation because what you would or wouldn't do somehow is going to shed light on all of this. For the last few years, I would kind of just stay in the shadows and be like, it's over there. Go ahead. It's right. Yeah, he's right there. See? Tall guy? Yeah. Got a mustache. Got really cool sandals. Okay. That's what I would do. I would not go straight up to him and be like, master, this is it. Come on. This is your time to shine. And I think that's what it was. Yeah. Nowhere in any of the gospel accounts will you hear Jesus, Judas saying to Jesus, it's your time to shine. I could be wrong. I don't know. I mean, none of us know. Yeah, you are probably most likely wrong and you're not supposed to engage in speculation. You're supposed to preach the text and what it says. But this is my theory. I think your theory, nowhere in scripture are you given the authority to preach your theories. You're supposed to preach the word. Put your theories away. Judas was aching for Jesus to get in, in the Sanhedrin, and just lay out his plan. Yeah, um, but there's no text that tells us that Judas was aching to have Jesus get into the Sanhedrin and lay out his plan. Um, there's not one shred of evidence that says that. I think Judas was aching for Jesus to get in there and just be like, look, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And maybe to convince them, maybe to get all of them saying, that's brilliant. I love that plan. Kingdom of God, let's do this. And maybe Judas was thinking, all Jesus needs is a little push. And yeah, but wasn't it like during the entire week leading up to Jesus's crucifixion, weren't the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Herodians all working together to test Jesus? And every time they would try to test him, he would end up totally baffling them and things wouldn't go well for them. Yeah, this whole theory suffers from a lack of paying attention to actual details that are there in the biblical text. And the worst that could happen is they disagree with them, and Jesus just stands there and pulls out his, like, God laser thing and <laughs> destroys everybody. 
you know, maybe like grows to like 20 feet tall and just shows himself to the world. I am God. And so 2,000 years ago, God revealed himself to the world and we can all follow that God, maybe. But that's not what happened. It's interesting. Judas pushed. He didn't pray. Judas wanted his own agenda to be followed. He wasn't content to follow God's agenda. That's a pushy person. That's a control freak. He was trying to control the outcome. And and it blew up in his face. And there are a couple guidelines I think we can draw from this. Because it's not just a story about Judas. It's a story about us. It's exactly what we do, even with the small things in our lives. So we have guidelines that we can now get from this theory regarding Judas. Not even a clear text regarding Judas. This is his theory regarding Judas. And there are a few things. I think there are a few things we can learn from this. Actually, four things that I'd love for us to learn from this. I'd love for me to learn from this because I'm a pushy person. I make things happen. I think, okay, we got to go. And, and there's oftentimes where I got to stop pushing and I got to start praying. If you're anything like me, maybe you can learn from something like this. I think, first of all, the first thing we can learn from is that pushy people see what other people don't. I mean, there's an element of truth to what Judas saw. There is an element of truth that, man, if Jesus could just persuade these people, if he could just get in there, it would be a fair fight. How can there be an element of truth to it when it isn't based on any text and you just totally told us that was your theory? Instead of just these little skirmishes out there in the villages somewhere, if he could just get into the powers that be and convince them about the kingdom of God, maybe something wonderful could happen. Yeah, it's a beautiful idea. And maybe there's something really right about it. And so pushy people aren't wrong most of the time. Oftentimes they're right. But here's the second thing, and this is the problem with pushy people. Pushy people push instead of pray. Because letting God lead is probably one of the hardest things we can do as humans. For Judas, that meant saying, well, maybe God has a much bigger plan in mind here. Maybe it's, maybe it's much bigger than I'm thinking of right now. Judas never saw that bigger plan about dying for the sins of the world, redemptive suffering, the idea that somehow grace would win in the end. He never saw that because he could only see his own plan because he was pushing it. And the problem with this, this whole deal is that pushy people don't realize that other people see through their schemes. We all know when people are being control freaks, and usually they don't, by the way. All they see is their attempt to right a wrong. And oftentimes they're hurt when we call attention to them being pushy. It's evident when Judas looks at Jesus, is it me? Well, of course it's you. But we don't even realize in our pushiness that other people see right through it. And then finally, pushy people only have themselves to blame. When it all shakes out, it's only you left standing there among the ruins because you made it happen. It took days to conspire to try to make this whole thing happen, and it took only hours to unravel. Because when you push, sometimes it makes things worse, and you are the only one to blame for that. And there is such a thing as pushing too far. 
The very thing that you want to have happen breaks. It falls out of your hands. It's, it's completely crushed because you tried pushing too much. And I think really what it comes down to is our faith. There are all kinds of people right now who are listening to this that believe in God. And you should. That, that's belief. But where's your faith? Because you might believe in God, but you really don't believe that God's doing his job. Do you? Because if you really believe that God's doing his job, you wouldn't be so pushy. You wouldn't be such a control freak. You wouldn't be trying to manage so much. Because that's really the essence of what faith is. Belief is one thing. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in grace. I mean, you can believe in all these theological concepts, but really where the rubber meets the road when we talk about our beliefs is what we do with our lives. And when we're constantly managing other people and pushing, that's not faith. That's you trying to enact power and trying to keep control. If you really believe like you said you do, you would trust God. So it might come down to little things, like maybe you're in an interview and someone asks you a question and you stretch the truth a little bit. It's a form of control. Or maybe you're working uh, with a team of people at work and you don't like the way a certain person's doing their job, so you withdraw help from that person. Or maybe you give them wrong information so they fail, so they get in trouble. That's a form of control. You need to slow down. You need to pray and not push. Maybe it's just something simple, you know, like husband's getting a beer gut. I'm going to start working out. You should too. It's pushy. Pray. Don't push. I, uh, let's say I'm a young lady who particularly likes a certain guy and he doesn't know it yet. He keeps talking about all these girls. Every one of the girls he talks about, I just spread a vicious rumor about. Hey, I just talked with Cheryl. She's so cool. Yeah, isn't it a shame she has that disease? That's mega control. That's abusive. You need to stop pushing. Start praying. I don't like the fact that my son is living with this girlfriend. So I'm going to try to sabotage the relationship. I'm going to try to make her feel miserable. You'll never be one of us. You'll never be in the circle. And the funny thing is, she's right. She is totally right. It is not God's best to live with somebody. It is God's blessed. It is God's best. Not God's best. It's a sin. It's called fornication. And in some cases, it's adultery. What do you mean it's not God's best? Hi. If, if the... If the f- you know, homicidal gem- genocide, that's just not God's best. If only Hitler had discovered God's best for himself. A foundation of the relationship is right. If you've tested it, if you've invested in it, and you ought to get married, you ought to get married. You shouldn't live together. God's best is that we get married. She's right. But she's doing it wrong. She's not letting God do his job. And all you've got are two people, a guy and a girl, that the only Christian they're seeing at this point is a manipulative control freak. And that's the way it's going to blow up. You might win. She might never get together with him. But in the end, 20 years down the road, oh, Christians are just, just a bunch of power-hungry control freaks. 
We don't want that. Pray. Don't push. And see, there's a difference between pushing and responsibility. Because I can hear some people thinking, well, wait a second. I got to do what's right. You know, I can't just let things happen willy-nilly. As a parent, as a friend, as a coworker, I've got to do what's right. I've got certain responsibilities. You're right. The dad who comes up to me and says, well, I can't make my son go to church. I mean, he's 16. He's got to decide what he wants to. No, you can. You actually can and probably should say, hey, as a family, we go to church. I can't make him go to that student ministry thing. Yeah, actually, you can. And you should. It's your responsibility to make sure that they go somewhere. You can choose. It's your responsibility they go somewhere where they're going to hear the word rightly preached and hear the gospel. Man. If you don't want to go here, you can go someplace else. But you got to go because that's what we do. Now, that's not controlling. That's responsibility. Controlling is when, now, how can I arrange it so that she gets sick? And then, no, you don't get, there's a huge difference between responsibility and controlling. And controlling is deceitful. It's working behind the scenes. It's trying to use my power rather than letting God exert his will. And so what I've done, a short little prayer. That in all of these instances that we can try out, and, and you know you can memorize parts of it. I actually have it in the uh, program, so go ahead and grab it real quick. It looks something like this. You can put it in your purse, put it in your wallet, fold it up, put it in your shirt. Doesn't matter. But it's a great thing to just memorize, especially when we're confronted with that time in which we really want to exert our own control and we want to just take over and overpower. And the prayer says this. It's real simple. God, I believe in you. I believe you're doing your job. Help me let it go and trust you. Listen to that. Help me let it go. You could just shorten that thing to just, oh, okay, God, I'm going to let go and let you. (sighs) Not based on any biblical text. It based upon a psychoanalysis of Judas and some theory regarding what was motivating him where there's no, not even a shred of evidence within the biblical text for it. Let it go. I choose to pray and not to push. It's a great little thing to memorize. Let's pray. Done. Man. Yeah. Um, if you attend a church, well, like this one, where they feel like they can just insert things into the text. It doesn't matter what the text says. And who cares? Who wants to focus on all of that? Instead, they find it more interesting to psychoanalyze the different people in the biblical text. You need to find a real church where the pastor will preach the gospel to you, tell you of your sins, and tell you of your crucified and risen Savior, and also the therefores that come out of that gospel that that change everything. This was psychoanalyzing theory time, not learn what scriptures really teach time. It's not a Christian sermon. It's not a biblical sermon. And this is absolutely contrary to what God has commanded his pastors to be doing. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. 
all of your sins. Amen.